We invite you to turn to the 25th Psalm this evening as we come to our second uh, second Psalm in, the, in this go-round of the Psalter. I'll read the whole of the Psalm. It's the Psalm of David, just like the last one. It's Psalm 25. Let's hear from David. Let's hear from our Lord. From the very word that is inspired and that is clear. The word of God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what's right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it's great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul will abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God does neither. It endures forever. Let's pray and ask God. Be a God who speaks once more to us in this hour. Father, teach us your ways. Be a good God to us. Show us your steadfast love and redeem your people from all our trials. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You've met maybe a a certain kind of Christian. Maybe in your life you've been this kind of Christian, the kind of Christian who always seems to know what God wants them to do. The kind of Christian who says, I, I know what God wants me to do and I just do it. I know what in every situation I just need to do this. I know the path ahead. I never have any trouble knowing that God wants them to do this, to marry this person, to go this place, to have this job, to uh, never really wonder about what God's plan is for their life. Never really having any hard questions, always easy answers. It's hard, I admit, it's hard being around that kind of a Christian 
because they're not really living a scriptural lifestyle. It's not saying they're not a Christian. Simply just to make the point that the person who believes they always know what God wants has not really been tested. Has not really been tested in life. Or if they have been tested, and I think this may be more of our situation, if they have been tested, they forgot they were tested. We just are so thankful that the test is over. And so what do we do? We, we think we know exactly what God wants us to do, and so we just live. We never ask questions about it. Here's a psalmist. Here's David. He understands that the will of God is not an easy silver bullet thing to figure out. It's a very complicated thing. It can be a very mysterious thing. It can be beyond our ability to suss out. This is a poetic word. It's a a psalm. It's poetry. It's beautiful. But it's a psalm that in its beauty is a sad psalm. It's a psalm about struggle. Now, some folks categorize it as a lament. I don't think actually the scholars are right who do that. Because the beautiful thing about this psalm is not that David's in trouble. He's in trouble. Surely you heard that. He's uh, uh, Verse 17, he has an enlarged heart. Not in that term. Not in the way you're thinking. He has an enlarged heart in terms of his troubles. He has a lot of troubles. He's distressing. He's afflicted. But I don't think the primary focus of this psalm is for David to just tell you about all his sadness. Rather, the beautiful thing and the encouraging thing about Psalm 25 is that David sees God's ways through his sadness. David sees God's paths, God's guidance through his sorrow, through his enlarged heart disease. And as we work through the psalm tonight, we're going to realize, and maybe you intellectually know it, but we're going to realize the way of the Christian life, the way of God, the way God works with you is never a straight line. It's never a straight, always improving, getting better and better, more and more victorious every single, no, 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 no. The way in which God works with you is a spiral up and down, up and down, gradually more and more up and down. The pressures of life, the pressures of your day, the pressures of this week, they will push on you. They will crush you. They will threaten to cripple you. They will make you focus on yourself. But look at how the psalm ends. I'm really uh, cutting off my nose, spot my face here by by telling you the ending from from the start. But here's the ending. David has talked all about his his trials, all about his struggles, and he ends in verse 22, not looking to himself, redeem Israel. It's a huge shift. He ends by saying, I don't care about me anymore. I don't care about me. I care about them. I care about others. You see, the beautiful thing about the God of Psalm 25, who, by the way, is your God if you're a Christian, the beautiful thing about Psalm 25 is that the God displayed here has the ability and has the desire to bring you out of your struggle and not just put you there, but to bring you out of your struggle and cause you to look at others, cause you to look more broadly up to him, out to others. This psalm gives a vision of God. It's a back-straightening psalm. You know, sometimes you need to have good posture. I was taught when I was uh, singing, always to stand up straight, to have good posture. This is a posture straightening psalm. 
This is a psalm that helps you to have good posture. It makes you lift your head up. It, it helps you to look out. Now, I think there are three stages. I wouldn't put it here on the actual uh, liturgy. You'll forgive me for that. But there are three stages here, uh, or dimensions, you might say, of what, uh, what we have. The first we see in the first five verses, God's guidance. Uh, verse 1 to verse 5, we see the way God guides. This opening section here is a prayer. You know, the Psalms are songs, but they're also prayers. It's a prayer that David is giving here. It's a prayer for what? A prayer for guidance. It's a prayer for guidance. You can tell a lot about a person uh, when you listen to them pray out loud. Y'all hear a lot more of me praying out loud than I hear of y'all praying out loud. But in the Psalms, you learn a lot about David because he prays out loud. He prays these words. They're written down. You can read David's personal prayers. And it's clear from his personal prayer life that he saw the way God guides people really has, has two key components to it. We see at least here. First, the first way God guides is actually a way God doesn't guide. It's a negative. Something God doesn't do. God does not give out his cell phone number. God does not give out his cell phone number and say, hey, call me whenever you want to. You might do that with somebody. That's great. God does not. Some Christians think he does. He doesn't. What do I mean? It's fascinating how many Christians say that when they pray, God speaks to them. It's fascinating that, that our perception of prayer is far more about God speaking to us. And I have a good prayer time. I felt the Lord speaking to me when I was praying. That's not what prayer is for. Certainly God can do that. But prayer is not for God to speak to you. Prayer is for you to speak to God. In other words, the point here that we see is that God gives us the phone book and he expects us to look up his number. He doesn't just hand out a cell phone number to anybody. He wants you to, I know you don't know what a phone book is if you're under a certain age, but you can imagine what I'm talking about. He, he gives you his word and he wants you to look up his will. That's the point I'm making. Instead, we want him to simply give us his will directly. We want him to tell us the answer immediately. We want to know our way from his view instantly, constantly, easily. But this psalmist understands. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 5. He says it right here. David prays, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Do you see that right there? Four verbs. Make, teach, lead, teach. David understands that knowing God's will in a given situation it's not a matter of just calling up the phone line, calling up God on the cell phone and saying, hey, God, what do I do today? Do I get out of bed? Do I not get out of bed? No, David understands that it comes through the general instruction that God brings. Make me, teach me, lead me in your truth. I mean, this is a constant question you have. It's a constant question. What is God's will? What does God want for my life? And the folks who ask that question are generally people 
who are well-meaning but Bible poor. They have a lot of good intentions, but they're not looking in the right place. So many of the answers that you need, that we need, are found in the general ways and paths and truth of God's word. It's the phone book. He doesn't just hand out his cell phone and expect you to just call him up every single moment you have a question. What do I do in this situation? What do I do here? He expects you to learn his phone book. He expects you to to learn his ways. The way God guides us is through the ways. The way God guides us through the ways he shows us with his people in his word. That's why we read the that's why we read about Joseph. We don't read about Joseph because Joseph is a literary masterpiece, even though it has quite a lot of good features in terms of literature. We don't read about Joseph because there's a cute moral at the end of the story. We read about Joseph because the God of Joseph is the God of us. The same God. He doesn't change. And the way God guides Joseph, the way God was Joseph in the pit, we saw this morning, the way God's bubble of providence was around him means that God's bubble of providence is around you. And therefore, for us to expect some special revelation of God, oh, I need help. Help me to know where do I go in this Today, who do I marry? Uh, What job do I take? Do I talk to person A or person B? What do I do? So much of what you need to know is right here. In general, principle form. And God's not usually in the business of handing out his special cell phone. He's not usually in the business of, of giving out his hotline to people who are too, well, lazy to pick up his word. And to come to him. Therefore, friends, it shouldn't be surprising if Christians become shriveled, wrinkled believers if we don't digest what he gives us in his scripture. Emaciated Christians. We think, who, who, who are we going to marry? And, and if you've been married for any amount of time, let me ask you, how did you figure out that that was the one you were going to marry? Did you close your eyes one evening and flip through the Bible and put your finger and really hope it wasn't Bathsheba? I hope you didn't. Hope you didn't, right? I don't think you did, by the way. How did you know this was the woman? How did you know this was the man that God desired for you to marry? Well, what's funny, of course, is that Think about the person you're married to right now. If you can, it may be a challenge for some of us, think back to how it was before you got married. How much information did you know? How well did you know your spouse before you got married? How well? Compared to how much you know about them now. How could you have any real confidence that you're in God's will for your job or for your marriage? If you just treat him like a lottery, flipping through and hoping a verse pops out and saying, oh, this must be what it means. Instead, friends, when it comes to the decisions of our lives, God's guidance is not a random lottery. We are to take the principles of the word of God. We're to seek to know his ways and we are to apply them to every situation we find ourselves in. Now, look, I, I, of course, you, you, you know that 
there are plenty of kind of new Christians, plenty of young believers who really tell us about God, and they may make some dumb decisions. They may not know all the ways. They may not know all the paths. But the beautiful thing is that often God begins by feeding us milk. That's what, that's what the, the author of Hebrews has told us. Often God starts out by feeding young Christians his, his milk. He, he takes his lambs in his arms. He says, you haven't been around me long enough to know what I'm like. So I'll, I'll be extra kind to you. But friends, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, that doesn't apply to you. He wants you to grow strong. He wants to lead you in his truth. And so he gives guidance that is general. And he wants you to learn to apply his ways and his truth to your life in every situation. That is why David says, lead me in your truth. There's a second thing in these opening verses, though, about God's ways. You see at the very end of verse 5, in fact. For you... I wait all the day long. David says, God, I need to wait for you. See, the second thing to being guided by God, to know what it means to be guided by God, the first thing, of course, is not to treat him like a guy you can call up on the hotline whenever you have an issue. But the second thing is to see here that God wants you to have patience with him. God wants you to learn patience. He wants you to learn waiting. He repeats it, by the way, towards, towards the end of the psalm, 20, verse 21. I wait for you. It's kind of a bookend to the psalm. I wait for you. Now, we don't mind hearing about patience in the church. We know that you, know, you don't always get everything. Any parent knows that. But we want a time-limited offer. We want patience to go on sale for the holidays, to have enough patience to wait until Christmas morning, and then we don't need to be patient again until next Christmas. We want patience, and we know, yes, there needs to be some level of patience, but we don't want too much of it. We don't want to keep waiting. But it's interesting that David does not say, uh, for you I wait all the day long, but tomorrow I'm going to stop waiting. This is a prayer that David would pray at a certain point in time, but it's a prayer for his whole Christian life. It's a prayer for your whole Christian life. Waiting is the name of the Christian game. Patience is the name of the Christian game all life long. We have to learn to be waiting, patient people. Why is that? Why is it the fact? Why is it the case that God wants to teach David patience, and He wants to teach you patience when it comes to His will? Because God is far more interested in what He's doing in you than what He does with you. He's far more interested and invested in what He does in you and to you than what. He does with you and through you. If I had to think of one chief countercultural idea that the Bible shows us, it's that idea. You notice that David's prayer is, make me know your ways, teach me your paths. I will wait as long as I have to. David does not say, I need you to get me out of the jam and then I'm out of here. David understands this basic principle that we as Americans don't get. A person is not worthwhile because of what they do. 
a person is worthwhile because of who they are. I mean, this is arbitrating American sin. We analyze people. We judge people on their productivity. What have you done for me lately? We judge our days to be good or bad days by the checklist. Now, my wife writes down her checklist. I just remember it in my head. But both of us think, have I done X and Y and Z? Check, check, check. It's a good day. Have I not done them? It's a bad day. I mean, think about the really significant questions you ask people when you meet them for the first time. You don't ask, who are you? That's a little bit rude even. Well, I did that deliberately. I admit. But still, you don't ask, who are you? You ask, what do you do? What do you do for a living? What's your job? That's how I can rank you and rate you and judge you. And God, however, is so little interested in the title that you bear. He's comparatively so little interested in what you do and your accomplishments because what you do will take care of itself in its own time. What he loves to talk about, what he loves to ponder with you, what he loves to see in your life is what he makes you to be. What God loves chatting about with you is who are you? Who are you as I work on you? Who are you as I work with you? We look at the trophies of our lives. We look at the resumes of our lives. We think that's who I am. That's importance. And all the while, God's looking at you and saying, you're my trophy. You're my trophy of grace. That's why a real examination of our hearts, a real examination of patience, what will make you a patient person is when you realize that this is a lifelong thing. And therefore, if you want to really test your heart, you can do this little test. Look at a person who has less money than you, less beauty than you, less smarts than you, less social skill, whatever. They're less cool. Can you say, I aspire to be like them because they are like Jesus Christ? They may have less of everything else in the world, but if they have more of Christ formed in them, if they have more of Christ likeness, I want to be like them. I mean, that is real a test, isn't it? To not use the categories of the world. The world uses all the other categories. The world uses the categories of money and, and smarts and skill and coolness and um, achievements and beauty. The world uses those skills. But God's categories are very different. I mean, think about it. Here is David in a tight squeeze. Look at verse 16, for example. Turn to me, he says. Be gracious to me. I'm lonely and afflicted. Verse 18, consider my affliction and my trouble. David's in a tight spot. He's under pressure. Enemies are around him. He feels caught in a trap. You felt that way. And what does David do? He's learned to wait. You know, it's like the kind of animal traps that if you get caught in them and you wriggle around, it's actually worse for you. You know the kind of trap I'm talking about. You know, you set a trap, the animal comes, they they wriggle around too much, and it's it's worse. If they just stood still, they could wait and get out. That's David. David understands that if God is working in his life, then David will need to be changed into the right man at the right place and the right time. 
mean, this is a challenge for you as a Christian because all your other friends, all your other neighbors, all the people who aren't Christians around you, I mean, they're living footloose and fancy free. They're having great lives by comparison. They're not worried about eternity. They're enjoying all the goodies of the day. They're on the highway, the freeway. They're living large. Meanwhile, you're stuck on the feeder road. You're stuck worse yet. You're stuck in a cul-de-sac. You're, 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 you're driving down a dead-end road. I mean, you're at church on Sunday evening. Think about all the cool things you could be doing instead of being here. You feel like you're Joseph in the pit, in prison. And yet, what is God doing really with you? I mean, the only, per, the only way you can be a person of patience with God and his will, the only way you can be a man or a woman of patience is to take this long-term view and say, what actually matters is not my experiences, but my character, what God is doing in me, that he is forming Jesus Christ in my life. And that is more important than all the achievements of, of, the, of, the, of the world. And at the right time, I mean, think about what Paul says. If, if, you, if you want to know where the New Testament talks about this, you can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That classic statement where Paul says, you know, I was afflicted. I was afflicted pretty bad. I had pressure. I had suffering. But blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, the Father of mercies, God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort, he says. The point is, Paul understands that as he's in pressure, as he's afflicted, he can say, eventually, to the Corinthian Christians and to us, my affliction was actually good because now I can comfort you in your affliction. And that's a perspective that we never have. In our afflictions, we, we cry, we whine, we weep. We don't wait for the Lord. But the, David says here, if you want God to guide you in life, don't treat him like a lottery. Don't treat him like the guy you call up every second to get some special Revelation, he's given you his word. Use that first. And then second, you need to wait upon him. But there's one, there's one big problem for David here. He, he knows God's guidance, but he has, secondly, uh, the past is an issue. He has a problem of the past. Before the future, before he knows what's going to happen in the future, he has to deal with the fact and the reality of his past. It's a recurring theme in the whole psalm. Look at verse 6, look at verse 7. David says, remember your mercy, O Lord. Why does he need God's mercy? Remember your steadfast love. Why does he need God's steadfast love? Verse 7 tells us, don't remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Remember me only according to your steadfast love for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Verse 11, he gets to it there. Verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, it's great. Verse 18, Forgive all my sins. Three times, at least, in this psalm, David confesses sin. Why does he repeat it? I mean, did God, did he like not take the first time? Was God kind of uh, not listening to the confession of sin the first time? Did God not forgive him the first time? Why is it three times David confesses his sin? The answer is very simple. It's not a problem with God. It's a problem with David. David's conscience. 
David's conscience is very slow to believe he's forgiven. Isn't that the case with some of y'all? You're very slow to believe. We, 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 we are slow people to believe that we're actually forgiven. You see, the consequences of our past sins can continue into our present. They can go into the future. We are slow to realize that despite the continuing consequences, the sin has been pardoned and forgiven. We are prone to doubt the God of goodness and steadfast love. And it's fascinating to notice when David makes this confession of sin. David makes the confession of sin. It it happens when the life pressures are severe. It happens when he's in the crucible. You know, the crucible, the hot flame that burns away the dross. He's in the crucible of life. And he realizes his most pressing need is not escape from his enemies. His most pressing need is not escape from suffering. It's not to get out of jail. It's pardon from sin. His most pressing need is not escape from his circumstances, but forgiveness from above. Not escape from down here, but forgiveness from God. You may have wrecked your past in all kinds of ways. Young ways, old ways, middle-aged ways. And you may think, maybe paralyzed and think, can I ever move forward with God? But the Father has said, before we go any further, son, David, let me tell you this word. I forgive you. It's verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are said Beth love. It's verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. God instructs sinners. That's a beautiful thought. That God is good and God is upright. And God is able to provide forgiveness. Now, it's, it's true that, that actions have consequences. It's true that whatever was in the background of the psalm, it seems to keep coming back to David. That's one of Satan's tactics. He he loves to convince you that you're actually not forgiven. He loves to convince you that God's not that good. He loves to convince you that really your guilt is still there. And that may be why David confesses over and over again. I don't know. But David must return not to the pain. Satan loves to pressure you at the pain point. He needs to return not to the pain, but to the pardon. He needs to return to the God of peace. To realize that his sins are forgiven, he can go forward into God's purposes. That's why in verse 6 to verse 10, he expresses here really a confidence in the character of God. He doesn't just look at the guidance of God and just confess his sin, but he expresses as he confesses his sin. He is confident in who he's talking to in who God is like. This is so important. It's so important in your life, you need to be persuaded that God cares. That God's not just playing a game with you, but he cares. Look at verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, your steadfast love. They have been from of old. In other words, David's saying, your mercy is not a recent thing that you just developed. You didn't just get merciful yesterday. Because you might stop tomorrow, I don't know when. But you've always been merciful. Your love has been steadfast. It's been full. Why is it important that David talks about that? He talks about God's goodness. Why is it important that he brings this out when he's dealing with the guidance question and the sin question? 
It's important because the way David walks before God and the way you walk as a Christian is totally determined by what kind of God you think you're dealing with, by what you believe about his character. I mean, this is why some people have a hard time thinking of God as their father. Maybe you don't. I hope you don't. But some folks have a hard time thinking of God as their father because they think of their heavenly father through the lens of their earthly father. And they didn't have great other fathers. So they have a hard time calling God their father. But we need to see God as he is. We need to be like what we think our God is like. And the reality is, you will be like whatever you think your God is like. If you're God's money, you will be like that God. You will pursue it. Your heart will be determined by it. You will be recreated. This is a basic biblical principle. You will become like whatever you worship. You will smell like it. You will sweat like it. You will breathe it in and out. But that's not only true if you worship an idol. It's true if you think falsely about the God of Scripture. Some parents, sadly, very well-intentioned Christian parents, teach their kids that God is a meanie, that God's an ogre. That's how the natural person thinks about God. He's always watching and waiting for you to slip up. He can't just wait for you to mess up and then come and get you. You see, they grab onto one truth about God, God's uh, omniscience he, and omnipresence. He's always there. He, he knows all things. And they grab onto part of God, but not the full God. And you can smell it in their lives. You can smell it. You can sense it. You can feel it in the way they carry themselves. They're always scared. But here's David. And what does David say? What does a man of God say? He realizes that God is, verse 8, good and upright. He is good and upright. He realizes that God is all good through and through. That's why the anchor of his soul is he's being squeezed, he's being crushed, as he wants to know God's will for his life, as he needs to be patient. The anchor of his soul is not a list of things he has to do to make God happy. The anchor of his soul is the happiness of God he already has. The anchor of his soul is not... Steps to make God like me. The the anchor of his soul is the fact of God's goodness already. The joy of the character of the creator. And I suppose if you want an application point, I suppose I'll give you this one. Are you really persuaded of God's goodness? Does that drive your week? Does that drive your life? Are you persuaded that God is not just 99% mostly good, but he's always good? Or are you judging what he is, who he is, by the events of your day? You had a good day? Yeah, then God's good. You had a bad day? Well, he's probably mad at you. Judge him by who he is, a God who does all things well. That's why perhaps the most beautiful thing is in verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. Do you realize that you can be friends with God? That he will let you in on his secrets. 
that he will give you a taste of what it's like to be his friend. David says that that's only for those who fear him. What does that mean? Does that mean you've got to be really scared of God? Does that even mean you have to simply be reverent towards God? It means partly that. But I think what's the answer is found in the next line. He makes known to them his covenant. What's his covenant? It's the record of his salvation. It's his ways. It's all that he is. He makes known to his friends his amazing grace. And when you taste the amazing grace of the God who is ever good, you'll stop treating him like a hotline. You'll stop calling him up every second saying, I can't do anything, God, unless I know 100% certainly that it's in your will. I don't want to be out of your will. Ah. You won't treat him like that because you're friends. You won't treat him that way. You'll let him tell you, I've already spoken to you about that. I've already given you these, these principles in my word. Go read it there. Go listen to what I said there. If, you, if you're my friend, go do that. And you'll begin to fear him when, when you confess your sin and Satan says, did you really do it? And you confess it again, and Satan keeps on badgering you, and you confess it again, and finally you realize, my friend is a God who is good, who pardons evermore. My friend is a God who isn't just high and lifted up, but he has come down at Christmas time. He has come close to me. He has gone through my affliction, and therefore I can come to him and get comfort. I can be sure that when he says, I forgive you, he's not holding back anything. Is that the God that you you look to? Is that the God that you seek? Is that the kind of guidance you want from the Lord? Is that the pardon that you look to? May it be the case because we look to God in the face. We have something better than David did. We look to God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see all of this on display in the Gospels. We see Jesus Christ pardoning sin. We see Jesus Christ being led by the truth of his Father's will again and again and again. We see his patience on full display, his goodness, his rightness, his leading the humble, his pardoning of sin, his protection of his people. That's your God. You know him. Do you know him? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you give us these words from a saint of old, from David. You give us these words and you don't just give it to us and then expect us to call you up later and ignore what you've already said. We thank you you give us these words that we can listen to them. We can hear your voice in them. Thank you that you call us your sons. You adopt us in your family. That we can come and sit with you and hear your voice. We pray you would make us people who are patient this week. People who come to you for pardon for our guilt. We pray this in the name of the pardoning, patient, perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen.